Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 139, verses 1 through 18. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light all around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me in together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes behold my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them has yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see all of you on this Mother's Day. Uh, we give a special thanks to all of the, the mothers, the grandmothers, great-grandmothers, stepmoms, aunts, and just those who have been like a mother to so many of us over the years. We give thanks to you. We give thanks to God for you this morning. We also uh, are so grateful for our seniors who are here. Um, you have been such an integral part of this church for so much of your life, and now um, you are in our prayers as you start the next journey of your life. We're so glad that you all are here this morning. Now, last week, Davis started us out in this new series, Heartwarming, a series where we are exploring the distinctive uh, things that make us Methodists, the, the beliefs and the practices that come from our Methodist founder, John Wesley. And last week, Davis started us out by talking about the primacy of Scripture, how we can use our reason and our experience and our church tradition, but all of those are uh, so that we can confirm the authority of, of Scripture. And today, we are diving into another fundamental pillar of our Wesleyan faith, which is the centrality of grace. What grace is? Why is it important for our lives and for how we live out our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, there is a really important question that comes up in about verse seven of this psalm that we just heard read. And the question is this, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Now, I can just imagine King David, he's, he's sitting in his room, he is meditating, he's pondering the big questions of life. And right after he had thought about the chicken and the egg and the immovable force and the unstoppable object or vice versa, more holy thoughts enter his mind and he thinks this, if God 
is as big and as powerful as we have been saying that he is. Is there anywhere that I can go to get away from him? Is there anywhere I can flee from God's presence? And the psalmist thinks about it. Well, what if I went up to the highest heavens? Yes, God would be there. Well, what if I went down to Sheol? Would God be there? Now, in, in Jewish understanding, Sheol is a, is a place of death. It's not exactly our equivalent uh, that we have a, a, our Christian understanding of, of hell, although there are some similarities. One Bible version that I like particularly translates the word Sheol as the grave. And I think that's a good way to describe it. Would God even be in the grave? Would God find me even there? I bought a, a new Bible recently. I needed an updated study Bible. And I noted something interesting in this new Bible when I was reading Psalm 139. It was in the, the heading. You know how the different Bible sections oftentimes have different uh, chapter headings to it? And the heading for Psalm 139 in this Bible was the inescapable God. And I like that. What a great title for that psalm. And it really answers that question, doesn't it? Except it kind of depends on your perspective on whether this inescapable God idea is a good thing or not. Because if you're a friend of God, like the psalmist was, well, yes, God's presence is a comfort and it's a joy to you. But what if you are up to things that you don't want God to know about? Well, then it's a little different then all of a sudden it sort of becomes a matter of emphasis, right? If you have joy and comfort, you're saying, oh God, where can I flee from your presence? But if you have something to hide, that question might be, where can I flee from your presence? Hmm. Now, on the one hand, this psalm is making some really big theological statements. It's, it's using all of these big words that we use in church sometimes like omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. These words that describe God as all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. It's about the characteristics of God that no human being has. And if we're honest, they're characteristics we shouldn't want to have, except sometimes we do. You know, the, the only time I was thinking about it, the only time that, that I have really ever wished for omniscience in my life was when I was a youth minister. Really, really, there is just something about being in charge of like hundreds of teenagers that you know you can't watch all of the time that will put some premature gray hairs on your head. James, Adam, do I get an amen on that? Yes. You read the parable of the lost sheep in, in, in a different way, right? And parents, you, you know this feeling as well. My grandmother, she used to warn me um, she, when I was a child, she says that she had eyes in the back of her head. And this was the 1980s. She had a really big perm. So that was probably true. I had no idea. But the problem is, is that for a lot of people, this is the only conception of God that they have ever grown up with and that they have ever known. God is, is kind of like, in that framework, God is like a spiritual CIA. 
right? He's around every corner. He's listening into every conversation you're having. He knows everything you're thinking. He knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. I mean, in this framework, the idea of an inescapable God, that doesn't sound like good news at all. It sounds like God doesn't respect your privacy. And if this is the idea of God that you've grown up with, and that maybe you've even been carrying around in your mind for a really long time, well, let me try and give you some comfort here this morning. You're not alone. A lot of us have carried around that idea of God for a long time. And with it has come years of shame, of guilt, of disappointment. And one of those people, interestingly enough, that felt that same way in his life, a person who is most pertinent for our heartwarming series is John Wesley himself. You see, from a very early age, John Wesley's parents, who who were very loving and encouraging, no doubt, but the 1700s were a very different time for child rearing. And and so they were very stern and strict people as well. They encouraged, maybe they even pressured John to go into the ministry in the Church of England. His, His grandfather and his father had both been ministers. It was sort of the family trade. And, and from a very early age, Wesley had a, had a keen sense that to be the best priest that he could be or to be the best Christian that he could be, he had to devote himself to living the most holy life that he could possibly live. Uh, from an early age, Wesley had a sense that every thought that he had and every action he took was seen and mattered deeply to God. When he was young, he read books with titles like The Imitation of Christ and The Rule and Exercises of Holy Living and Holy Dying and The Practice of True Devotion. You probably read these when you were teenagers too. And all of these, which are devotional classics of the Christian faith and have encouraged many people over the years, and they encouraged Wesley too, but they also begin to put a burden on him. It began to weigh on him heavier and heavier. And so he began to challenge himself to live a more holy life. And sometimes he would do it in ways that his friends thought were a little extreme, maybe even unsafe. So for example, when he was a young man, Wesley would experiment to see how little sleep he could get so that he could read the Bible more. He would fast every single Wednesday and Friday. He would not eat a thing until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. He did that for years. And then eventually he began to keep a diary of, of his life. And this was the most meticulous diary you have ever seen. He would literally log every single minute of his life and what he was doing. And he would then give it a rank on a scale of one to nine on how holy his thoughts were during those minutes. Now, you're probably thinking that this all sounds a bit obsessive, and you're not wrong. (laughs) And it is partly true that we in our modern culture, we've we've lost a sense of the, the power of intense spiritual disciplines, but you're also not mistaken in recognizing that during this time in his life, Wesley, I think, had lost a sense of spiritual balance in his life. 
Wesley, like the psalmist, he knew that God was inescapable. But instead of that being a source of comfort and joy, it became a burden. He was seeking an assurance for his faith and he could not find it. And some of you know what that feels like. Now, the most important word in this psalm that we heard read is the word no. Go back sometime this week, read this whole psalm again, and you will count the word no seven times. And I don't think it's a mistake that it is in there seven times because seven is an important number in the Jewish tradition. It's a number that represents wholeness and completeness. It's a, it's a number that represents the seven days of creation when God rested and said, this is complete. This is good. Because for the psalmist, while this psalm does name all of these omni words, these characteristics of God that are powerful, what the psalmist has discovered is that when you experience the love of God, all of those powerful characteristics that can seem frightening in one sense are in fact the most comforting and loving things we can know about God. Because God doesn't just see us from eyes in the back of his head. God knows us, knows us deeply. And this, I think, is what the centrality of grace is all about. See, grace, grace is one of those doctrines in the church that we know we're all supposed to understand it and we're all supposed to believe it. And yet it can be very difficult to really, to really internalize it in our hearts and then live it out in our lives. Because, because what grace means is that what seems most frightening and terrifying about God it is it is it turns out what actually saves us and gives us new life. Because with grace, God's wrath is not just a punishment. It's the thing that makes us seek new life. With grace, God's judgment isn't something to be afraid of, but, but in fact, it is something that we desire so that it can make us new like a refiner's fire. And God's justice, it shouldn't make us cower in fear, but it should give us hope for our lives and for the whole world. Because wrath without grace just brings fear. And judgment without grace, it just brings shame. And justice without grace, it just brings burden. But with grace, Everything is transformed, everything, including you and including me. In his books, The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes about Aslan, the, the lion, who is the Christ figure of those books. And he writes about, about Aslan several times. He says, Aslan is not a tame lion, but he is good. And that is our God of grace. Not tame, but good. And I think one of the best things for us all to realize about this grace is that this has been God's plan from the very beginning. And you mothers know what it means when that psalm says that God has been knitting us together even in our mother's womb. 
I'll finish up with just a couple of thoughts this morning. So I, I mentioned that the psalmist wonders if God would be in Sheol or the grave. Now, this is a little bit more of a vexing question in the Jewish religion than we might realize. So for instance, in the Jewish faith, one of the most important values for anyone to follow is the value of life. There are 613 laws in the Torah. And, and if you're Orthodox, you must follow all of those laws. But if any of those laws ever come into conflict with the value of life, then you are released from that law for that moment. So for example, one of the laws is that you cannot start a fire on the Sabbath. You can't do it. That's work. So you can't start a fire on the Sabbath, except if you're walking down the road and you see somebody has fallen into a frozen lake and is suffering from hypothermia, you better start gathering wood because you, it is now your duty to warm that person up to save their life. That is how valuable life is. And so that sort of adds a different, different stakes to that question, right? God, will you follow me? Will your presence even be down in the grave? Would God be found in a place that he completely detests, which is against his very character as a creator and a giver of life? Would God even be there? Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago in a sermon, if you were here, that, that Wesley, when he was a young man, he took a mission trip uh, from England where, where he lived. He went to America, to the New World, to Savannah, Georgia specifically, which at the time was just a, a colony. And this was during the same period of his life that I described earlier, when he was feeling the burden of his faith and being overwhelmed by a sense of judgment. Now, now get this, to get to Georgia at that time, you had to take a ship across the Atlantic. Delta was not doing direct flights at that particular time in history. And the trip, it took several weeks. And, and they were leaving in the middle of the winter when the storms were the worst in the Atlantic Ocean. And now Wesley was apparently what we might call a nervous sailor. Uh, he didn't like the sea. He didn't like the ocean and while they were on that trip to Georgia, Wesley and all of the crew, they experienced not one, not two, but three major storms on the Atlantic Ocean. And it was the, the third of, of those storms that was the worst. Now on the ship with Wesley was a group of Christians that were called Moravians. And they were known at that time for their deep faith. And this Third big storm, just it was, as it was breaking and as the waves were coming over the side of the, the ship, these Moravians decided to have a prayer meeting. They decided to get together and have a little church service in the ship. And Wesley was there with them. And as the waves were, were crashing over the side of the boat, as people and objects were just sort of flying around the room, people were screaming out literally for their lives. And Wesley thought for sure, this is the moment when we are all going to our graves. These Moravians begin to sing. They started to sing a psalm. Calmly, and reverently. 
And Wesley in his journal, he doesn't say what psalm it was that they were singing, but this is just my guess. It would make total sense to me if they were singing words like, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in the watery grave, God, you are there. And Wesley, up to that point in his life, who had been burdened by thoughts of an inescapable God, he begins to realize that when that kind of grace is central to your heart and your life, then everything, even the grave, is transformed. And Wesley writes in his journal about that day, the worst storm that he had witnessed on the sea, that it was the most glorious day I have hitherto seen. Friends, do do you wanna know if God will go even to the grave for you and for me? Well, the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ who suffered and was crucified is that he already has. But what grace means is that in the resurrection, God has overcome it. And if God has overcome even the grave, then so will we. That is the centrality of grace that transforms everything, even death. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.